broad ocean, my soul triumphs over all evils on the shores of mortality. Time with its light amusements and cruel disappointments never appears so inconsiderate as when I'm in prayer. In prayer, I see myself as nothing. I find my heart going after you with intensity and long with vehement thirst to live for you. Blessed be the strong gales of the Spirit that speed me on my way to the new Jerusalem. In prayer, all things here below vanish, and nothing seems important but holiness of heart and the salvation of others. In prayer, all my worldly cares, fears, anxieties disappear and are as little significance as a puff of wind. In prayer, my soul inwardly exalts with lively thoughts as what you are doing for your church. And I long that you should get yourself a great name from sinners returning to Zion. In prayer, I am lifted above the frowns and flatteries of life and taste heavenly joys entering into the eternal world. I can give myself to you with all my heart to be yours forever. In prayer, I can place all my concerns in your hands to be entirely at your disposal, having no will or interest of my own. In prayer, I can intercede for my friends, for ministers, for sinners, for the church, for your kingdom to come with greatest freedom, ardent hopes, as a son to his father, as a lover to the beloved. Help me to be all prayer and never to cease praying. This can also be a prayer we can pray to the Lord. Draw me close to you. Never let me go. Lay it all down again. To hear you say that I'm your friend. You are my desire. No one Nothing else could take your place To feel the warmth of your embrace Help me find a way Bring me back to you You are 
my desire No one else will do Cause nothing else could take your place To feel the warmth of your embrace Help me find a way Bring me back to you Closer, Lord, 
just want to praise you. Lift my hands and say, I love you. You are everything to me. And I exalt your holy name. I exalt your holy name. I exalt your holy name on high. And we exalt thee. We exalt thee. We Jesus, and 
said, when I am alone, and when I am alone, and when I am alone, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, and when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. Said when I come to die, and when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world, you can have all this world, you can have all this world. Father, let that be our prayer, that all that matters in this life is your Son and your will for our lives. Lord, be with us as we walk the Christian walk on our daily basis. Lord, as we study the subject of prayer, that it would touch our hearts. Lord, we'd become men and women of constant prayer, as the scripture teaches, that we'd lift up all things and all situations at all times to you in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Let us open to Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Exodus 25, 8 is where we'll be. Exodus 25, verse 8. God is speaking to Moses, and he says, And let them, the Israelites, make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. Father, this morning we are here, and we have come to pursue your very presence Nearness to you, Lord, is what we desire, to be in the shadow of your wings, in the safety of your arms, to be close enough to hear you speak. Father, we think of John, the apostle, the disciple whom you loved, that last supper as he laid his head upon your chest. True intimacy. And we pursue this morning to be those that can say, we have heard your heartbeat. We have felt your chest rise and fall when you spoke. So Lord, let us know your voice. Let us delight in your presence. Because your word has promised us that there is fullness of joy. And riches forevermore in your presence. 
So you've chosen to dwell in our midst, and we thank you, Father, and we want to receive the presence that you've chosen to bring here. So come, abide in our hearts, Father, abide in our minds, abide in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is now our second message in a sermon series that we're entitling Prayer, the Pauper and the Prince. And the idea is that we are paupers, destitute beggars in total need of the prince who is Jesus. And so prayer is a relationship between us, the paupers, and God, the prince. And we saw last week that prayer is the praise of the prince in the pleadings of the pauper. That he has a ton of resources that we are the ones in need of. And prayer praises the prince when we come with our pleadings as paupers. We saw that in the prayer model that we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. And there, Jesus said in verse 8 of that section, that your heavenly Father knows the things you have need of before you even ask of him. And so when I read a verse like that, it makes me, coming up to a passage on prayer, ask, if God really knows all the needs that I have before I ask, then why pray? Why ask if he already knows? What is the purpose and the point of saying something he already knows? And we saw that the model prayer was showing us that we pray so that God gets the glory through my humility. In other words, my prayer, the petitions I make, are confessions of my dependence upon his preeminence. So yes, he already knows, but I pray to come and break my pride, bring myself as a pauper before the prince and say, oh, how I need you, and it glorifies him through my humility. And that's the reason we pray, even though he knows the needs that we have of. So that was last week. That was the purpose of prayer. This morning, we are going to see that prayer is the pauper's pursuit of the prince's presence. And we're going to look at that in the model of the tabernacle that Moses erected through God's direction for the Israelites. The tabernacle is a model of prayer being the pursuit of God's presence. That's what prayer is. It's pursuing his presence. And if we want God's presence in a realized, manifest way, prayer is the first way to get there. Oh, you can read your Bible. That's a great way to get into his presence. But reading the Bible has no valuable relationship with Christ unless it's penetrated with prayer. Prayer takes the words off the page into my heart and I hear the Father's words through them. God speaks to the Bible because he speaks presently from the Bible. There's nothing mystical about paper and ink, but when my prayer and the reading are combined as a relationship with God, I am now in his presence. And the same thing with worship when we sing. There's nothing mystical about songs and words in a certain pitch and tone. But when prayer 
is coupled with the singing and the music, it thrusts us into his presence. So that's essentially what worship is. It's sung prayer. It's essentially what the Bible is. It's read prayer. And so prayer pursues God's presence. And we're going to see the tabernacle as a model of praying in a way to pursue that presence. And what we want to pull away from that this morning is that we pray to pursue his presence as evidence of my dependence on his providence. So let us look now at the tabernacle. It should be noted that though God had Moses build a physical tabernacle for the Israelites, the purpose of it in verse 8 says, let them make me a sanctuary, that's the tabernacle, that, here's the purpose of it, that I may dwell in their midst. In other words, that my manifest presence may be right at the heart of their camp. Now, though they had a tent where God's presence was manifested, later, when the kingdom moved into the promised land, Solomon built a temple, which is just the same thing as a tabernacle, just in a permanent form. And God's manifest presence dwelt there. But now, after Jesus had accomplished his work of redemption on the cross, it is not coincidental that only 40 years after his resurrection, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and demolished and hasn't been there since. That is no coincidence. There is no temple in Jerusalem because the temple of God moved into the Christian's heart. Where 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. So that the tabernacle then was a place for God's people to meet with him. Now that place to meet with God is here with us. Anytime. Anywhere. So as we look at the tabernacle as a model of prayer pursuing his presence, we need to realize that this isn't going to only be done in a church, in a physical tabernacle. It's going to be done here in the spiritual tabernacle so that we can do this anytime, anywhere. So we are the new tabernacle. So the tabernacle makes prayer a model to pursue God's presence. Um, The tabernacle is a designated place of God's meeting with his people. So what we're going to do is look at the tabernacle, look at the eight parts of the tabernacle. There are eight components. Four of them were in the outside court area, and then the other four were inside the actual tabernacle, and the fourth being inside a sacred room inside of the tabernacle. So you move from outside in, and each step you take of these eight steps, it gets more and more intimate as you move to the heart of God's manifest presence, which is at the eighth and final step, a room in which they called the Holy of Holies. Because there no man could enter lest he gaze upon God and die. And a huge curtain, a veil was there blockading the Holy of Holies from man ever entering in. But praise be to God that when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was rent from top to bottom saying, God now says, man can come to me freely. So we get to use this model of prayer to get to the Holy of Holies whenever we wish. So let's get into it. I am going to say that um, this message 
is based upon John Corson's book called Praying Through the Tabernacle. And it is going to be in the back table, the red table back there at the end of service. And um, we're just going to ask a dollar for the book so that we don't freely give it out to people that don't want it. So that book will be for your resource. John Corson has all of this detailed in that short book. You can read it in about two hours, um, one if you're a quicker reader. And so um, I'm basing this message off of it. We'll might defer in a couple points because I've intentionally, I read the book years ago. I actually heard John first give a message on it years ago. I intentionally chose not to refresh my memory of the book so that this would be more out of my experience of the tabernacle rather than just quoting John's book verbatim. But when you pick up the book, you'll be reminded of a lot of these things and see a couple of different perspectives. All right, so the eight parts of the tabernacle, here they are, then we'll run through them. First, you come to the gate. After entering the gate, second, you're in the courtyard. In the courtyard, you third, come to the bronze altar where the sacrifices were made. Past the bronze altar is the fourth piece. It's the bronze laver where you'd wash off all the blood and the guts and the mess from the sacrifice. Then there's a tabernacle. You enter into it. And fifth, on your right side, your right side, there is a table of bread called the table of showbread because the bread was always to be in God's presence. Opposite of that, on your left side, would be a huge candlestick with seven lights, and it was called the lampstand. And then, at the very end of the tabernacle, just before the veil of the Holy of Holies, there was an altar of incense, where a very special fragrance and incense was used only for the altar. And as it burned on the altar, beautiful smoke and aroma went up to God. And then eighth, behind the veil, was the Ark of the Covenant, in which was a box and two cherubim with outstretched wings over the box, and God made his throne between the cherubim. And that was where his manifest presence dwelt. And no man dared enter unless he wanted suicide. So those are the eight places. So let's go through them, and we'll learn this prayer model, these steps to get ourselves to the presence of God. So number one, the gate. What you do here at the gate is the first step of prayer is thanksgiving. Psalm 100 verse 4 says that we are to enter through his gates with thanksgiving. So as we come to the gate in prayer, we come to God with thanksgiving. We start off by thanking him for everything that he's done, especially what Jesus has done. Because Jesus in John 10 said, I am the door. And it's through Jesus that we have access to the pastures of abundant life. So when we come in prayer, he is the door, he's the gate, and we thank him for what he's done. We thus pray in Jesus' name. He's our access point to the Father. And thank him for what he's done, particularly what he's done on the cross. Now there are huge benefits to beginning prayer with thanksgiving. So often, I may not be in the heart to pray. I may not want to. <laughs> Does that ever happen? All the time. It's a prayer sometimes we don't get to because we don't ever feel like it and we wait for the feelings. But what I've learned is that when the feelings lack, just enter in and the feelings will come. And Thanksgiving is a great way to kickstart that because when I'm feeling down, 
All I need to do is start lifting up thanksgiving, and it turns my eyes off of me, puts them on what God has done, and I find that when I'm feeling down, I begin to look up and feel better and cheer up. So thanksgiving gives me a much more positive outlook on my situations in life. And then I'm ready to pray more because I'm just so thankful for what God's done. The grumbler looks at what he doesn't have, but the grateful man looks at what he does have. And that's what makes him a great and full man. So we thank Jesus for what he's done. Second, now through the gate we come to the courts. And Psalm 100 verse 4 continues. It starts, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So as we enter into the courts, we just praise God. Thanksgiving is elevating what he has done action-wise on our behalf, but praise is elevating who he is, his nature, his character, his goodness. So in the courts of praise, I elevate his love, his faithfulness. I ponder the high things of his character, that he's above my understanding. I paint a bigger picture of God and a smaller picture of myself. Reminding myself who I come to pray to. David understood the art of praising God. Psalm 84, 10, he says, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be praising in your courts than be anywhere else on this earth. Because as my heart praises God, I find that my heart stays with God. And the more wonder that I have for him, the less I will wander from him. Praise is necessary for us to have a renewed adoration of Jesus. So the gate of thanksgiving, the courts of praise, and third, the bronze altar of confession. See, in the middle of the courtyard was that altar where the Worshippers would come and bring the animal, and the priests would kill it and slaughter it and make a huge mess of things. If you want to know the grotesque details, go to Leviticus 1, and it will define for you how they were specifically to dissect and wash certain of the entrails and its whole program that was disgusting. But that is what confession is when we come to the altar. We come because the Lamb has already been slain for us, Jesus Christ. And we come now to open up our hearts and say, God, this is my mess. Because there's a mess called sin in our lives. And it's just breeding and manifesting, festering itself in this disgusting way. But we come to the altar so that we can be flayed open upon the altar and God can clean us and wash all that away. As we said last week in the Lord's Prayer, confession isn't because God needs to know what I've done. He knows. I need to know what I've done. And we remember that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from the blood, from all unrighteousness. So confession is essentially an admission of two points. When I come to the altar to confess, I say first, I am wrong. My sin that I did, no excuses, just flat out, I am wrong. Oh, but I, I, I cursed and swore at her because of what she did. You're not confessing, you're making excuses. I was wrong. 
I shouldn't have cursed and swore at her. I shouldn't have flipped off the idiot on the freeway. I shouldn't have even called him an idiot now, Father. I'm sorry. You just, you are honest with him about your failure. I am wrong. And that opens you up. And then the second point is the admission that though I'm wrong, yet I am right. I am made right by Jesus who died for what I just confessed. So that I don't have to have that confession hovering over me. I need to realize that as I confess, remind myself, yes, but if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive because of Jesus. So those two points, I'm wrong, yet I'm right. And when we come to confession, when we realize the sins that we've committed as we come in prayer, we ought not to think that our confession demands some sort of action or positive thing we need to do to make up for what we messed up. David learned, he said in Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David said that after he had adultery with Bathsheba. And he didn't say, God, the sacrifice that you want from me is if I give a thousand animals or tithe 50% of what I have, then you'll be happy. David said, the sacrifice you want is my broken heart, my humbled spirit, my confession. And so, yes, confession is messy when we admit what we've done. And it's so ugly to see and to actually say point blank, I was wrong, Father. Yet when the sacrifice is slid open and the mess is made, we can then be healed. God can't heal your inside heart until you flay yourself open in confession. Confession leads us to healing. Jesus said in the Gospels in several places, from Matthew 9, 12 specifically, he said that those who are well, healthy, have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Go and learn what this means, Pharisees. I desire mercy and not your sacrifice or your works. For I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinner. So in my confession, I've learned that I am never closer to Jesus than I am when I'm confessing my sin. He's not impressed when I come in my righteousness because the doctor can finally get to work when we admit we're sick. So I find this altar a very important part. And initially you think, oh, whatever, I'm already forgiven. We kind of skip over the altar of confession. No, I find this so necessary. Spurgeon said that as a wrestler enters into the ring, he strips off before he begins wrestling. And the same way, confession is our stripping of the soul so we can make our pleadings to God. We can begin to wrestle with him and to be close to him. So that's the importance of the third altar of confession. Number four. Past the altar was the bronze laver or the basin of water in layman's terms. Um, The bronze laver is the point of cleansing. We have just made a mess. Our soul is bleeding. Our pride is hurt. So we come to clean off, to wash off all the blood and guts. And here we come to the word of God because Jesus said, John 15, 3, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
So what you do at this point is come to a promise of Scripture. One of my favorites is, as we've said twice already, John, 1 John 1, 9. Come to it and say, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me all my sins and cleanse me. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I, I, I just hold that promise that, yes, I made a mess, but I can be clean because God is faithful. He is fair, righteous, and just to cleanse me. Jesus never once has looked at our sin and laughed or mocked or said, get away from me. In John 13, on the last night of his life, he shocked his disciples when he stood up, took his clothes off, girded himself with a towel, grabbed the basin of water, and went around to each of their feet and began to wash them. And when he came to Peter's, he said, Peter, let me wash your feet. No, sir, no, master, no way. You are not washing these stinky things. But he couldn't be cleansed unless the sandal came off. And Jesus said, if you don't let me, you have no part in me. <laughs> Peter, okay, okay, have all of me. Give me a bath. And that's what happens. We've taken the sandal off in confession and the, the smell, the dirt, and all the grime that we've been walking through and doing is there, but Jesus will cleanse it now. And never once has he looked at the foot and said, ha, ha. No, he just goes right with the rag in the water and cleanses. So take a verse, just ponder it. This isn't time for your Bible study. It's just a verse. Meditate, chew, ponder, and allow the word of God to cleanse you, to get you back on the right track. So now we're ready to enter into the actual tent so number five, on your right, is the table of bread. Here is where we plead for our needs. Matthew 6, verse, um, actually, yeah, Matthew 6, verse 11, Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. And we saw in that model that that's where we ask for our needs. And same thing here in the tabernacle. We come and we ask for our needs so if you are feeling afraid, ask God to give you peace or courage. If you are struggling to love somebody, pray that God will give you love. This is where we pray. Your rich resources give to my feeble needs, whatever they are, strength, peace, joy, um, money even. Any kind of needs, physical, spiritual, give them to God and he will meet us with his bread of life. So then opposite, number six, the golden lampstand. This is where we pray for ministries. Because the lampstand was there in the dark tabernacle to give it light. <laughs> no electricity. The lampstand was your light. And the lampstand reminded the priests that we are the light of the world. God chose Israel so that they could be a light to the dark world, that there is one true God, not an idol. He is Yahweh, and he is all good for mankind. They were to be that light. And it was to remind them, we are a ministry. God called them a nation of priests. And that was their duty. And so we pray for those who are the lampstands in this world, the ministries, the churches, the pastors, you lift up Pastor Mike, that he would continue to shine bright, that God will trim his wick every now and then. Amen. Not that he's wicked, but... You pray for Sunday night Bible study. You pray for Church of the Woods. 
You pray for church on the mountain. Pray for the church, not just your church. Pray for pastors. Pray for missionaries. All those who are the light of the world. And you are yourself. So pray that God would kindle that light to burn through you too. There is great reward, I believe, when we pray for other ministries. Because though we may not be that pastor or that person on the front lines, we may just be that guy that goes to work every day and we shine our light and and trust that God is shining through us. And every now and then we get a chance to share what God's doing in our lives with an unbeliever. We might just be one of those people and think that I'm not significantly used. Listen, God is a body. God has a place for all of us. And when we pray for other ministries, we are partaking in that ministry. We're putting our hand in the work. For example, when David and his soldiers went to go beat up the Amalekites, half of his army was too tired to go into the battle. So David said, hey, stay here, guard the supplies, and we will go fight the battle. Now, of course, they beat the Amalekites up. They bring all the loot and the plunder and the treasures back to camp. And those that have the blood on their face and the sweat on their brow and the swords stained with human stuff, um, they come up back to the camp and say, so David, um, these that stayed behind don't get any of the goods, right? David said, no. Equal portion for all, those who stayed behind and those who went. And the lesson for us is that we may not be the one on the battlefield. We may be at the supply lines, but pray for the battlefield. And the reward in God's eyes is equal. Harvest Crusade, we think Greg Laurie is going to be greatly rewarded in heaven because of all the souls he's led to the Lord. Equally rewarded are you for those souls you prayed for that were saved. It wasn't Greg alone that saved them. They would never be saved without the prayers of the saints. We're partakers in ministries So you may not be in the capital M ministry, but you are in a ministry. And maybe that's praying for the ministry. So pray for ministries, pray for the light of the world, pray for the church. Paul begged, pray for us, brethren, 1 Thessalonians 5.25. Then we come seventh to the altar of incense. And here's where we give intercession for the saints, for unbelievers as well. In Revelation 8, this altar of incense is seen in heaven. And there, as the aroma is rising, John is told that these are the prayers of the saints. The incense on the altar is the prayers of the saints. And true prayer is prayer that is prayed in the plurality. As we saw in the Lord's Prayer, it said over and over, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A plurality is true prayer. And thus, true prayer must include other people, not just ourselves. So pray for your parents. Pray for your friends. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for the unbelievers. Pray for your enemies. No, yes. Jesus said, John, uh, Matthew 5.44, pray for those who persecute you. And I think this is so important to pray for the needs of others because it, it gets my eyes looking for the body of Christ, looking for needs, caring for people. 
I found that when I'm in prayer for people, I develop a care for people. And we're going to look at that next week, how prayer is um, the kindling fire for our care for people. That'll be next week in detail. But um, here, just pray for people. And you'll see that when you pray for them, you begin to care for them. And your enemies become a lot less hateful. (laughs) A lot more seeing that they have a soul and a need for salvation. So when I pray for people, God changes the way I see people, and that's why we need to pray for people. So the altar of intercession, bring out all the needs, all the requests for salvation. And finally, we come to number eight. We are allowed to rip that veil back and just to be in the Holy of Holies, the manifest presence of God. And here you are. You've prayed seven steps through the tabernacle, and bam, there you are. It's amazing when you get to this point how much time has flown by. You thank God just for five minutes. Completely doable when you consider how much He's given us and done for us. You praise God for five minutes, confess your sins for five minutes. Maybe more minutes. You meditate on a verse just for five minutes. You go through each of these steps for five meager minutes. You know what you come up to? The time you break through the veil, you've prayed for 35 minutes. I bet you've never done that before. And there you are. And you've been so intensely focused pursuing God's presence that you feel as if you are in the manifest presence of God. And all you have to do is like, what else can you say? Nothing, that's fine, because you're in the presence of God. And Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy at your hand, are pleasures forevermore. So just receive it. Just listen, worship, wait, receive from God. Ecclesiastes gives us good advice in 5 verse 2. Solomon says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For 35 minutes, we've been pleading for his presence. And now, let us soak it in. Just that wonder and worship before God. How rarely we get to this place, but how beneficial it is. We, we have such a mindset as Christians in, an, in our American context that we have to achieve stuff. In prayer, I need to achieve. I need to get them saved. So I'm praying, and it's all about God, hear me. Let's achieve this together. And I, I, the more and more I walk with God, the more I'm realizing it's not an achieving relationship. It's a receiving relationship. I utter my needs, and he meets them. And consequently, almost paradoxically, when I am receiving, I am actually giving him glory. So I give to him without giving him anything, just by receiving. Christianity, that's why Jesus said, I've come to give life and life more abundantly. Because it's a life of adding on, not a life of meager famine and feasting as most religions portray the way we ought to live. So come to his presence and just receive Be enriched by his joy and by his pleasures forevermore. So those are the eight steps. Now, um, 
I want to clarify that there is a reason for this model. And it is not so that God hears you. That's not the reason for this eight-step model. Models are not necessary for prayer. If they were, um, if there was one right model, then we've already contradicted ourselves because last week we looked at a model in the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus there gave us the six petitions for glorifying him. Here we have eight steps for pursuing his presence. So there's different kinds of models in Scripture. Models are not the only way to pray. They are methods to help us pray. I've often found that there are times when I come to pray and I struggle. I'm not sure what to say. I'm not, I just got too much on my heart. Look, there's free prayer and there's formed prayer. Come to God with free prayer. And just whatever's on it, just let it out and pray to him. But there are also times when I found formed prayer is much more beneficial because I'm just too distracted. So I need the guidelines, the steps to keep me focused. I'm going to thank him for a while. I'm going to praise him for a while. I'm going to confess for a while. To keep me going. So there's a place for free prayer. There's a place for formed prayer. Incorporate it every now and then when you're struggling. Um, I've found that models benefit me in two ways. First, a model helps me offer my petitions with intention. To offer my petitions with intention. Spurgeon said in his book, The Power in Prayer, he said, God forbid that our prayer be a mere leaping out of one's bed, kneeling down and saying anything that comes first to mind. On the contrary, may we wait upon the Lord with holy fear and sacred awe. Not just a babble and, whoa, here I am, God. Blah, 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 blah. The model helps me pace, helps me listen, helps me focus. It helps my petitions to come across with intention powered behind them. They're thrusted, they're pleadings. They're not just me talking. They're actually asking for something. Second way they help me um, is that they, models help improve concentration in the midst of distraction. My mind, at times, is able to just pray freely, just wherever my thoughts are, my heart's going, like I'm praying for this, and sometimes it's going really good. There's so many times I'm so distracted. I start praying for um, the salvation of some kid I know, and all of a sudden my mind's wandering to all the other unsaved people I know. I'm starting to think about things I know they're doing, what their parents are thinking, and, and I start to think about RIM and how crazy it must be to go to school there, and all the struggles the teens are struggling with, and all, all of a sudden I'm like realizing, whoa, I haven't prayed for the last five minutes. I've been thinking about the problems of youth, and I'm not going anywhere with it. So it helps me concentrate when distractions are bombarding me, or there's times when you're praying and um, the phone rings or something. And, you know, if that distraction happens, your mind can be put right back to where you were because you're going in a step-by-step model. So I found that helps me improve my concentration and distraction. Uh, there's two other ways to do this too. One, Corson, often I've heard him encourage his congregation to pray, actually forming words on your lips. Not just praying in the head, but to articulate whether verbally or silently to yourself what you're praying because it is impossible to be distracted and daydreaming when you're actually forming words on your lips. And then another way is your posture. We often think that our posture doesn't matter because God looks at the heart, and that's true. But my mind cares about posture a lot. 
When I'm actually physically on my knees, my mind is always aware of what I'm doing versus just slouching on my bed. <laughs> my mind's kind of multitasking there. All right, so now with all this said, let, we need a profit from this model of pursuing God's presence through the tabernacle. We need a profit from this. Ironically, the tabernacle's courtyards were only 150 feet by 75 feet. 150 feet, half a football field by 75 feet. For two million people camping around it. How on earth do you fit them in there? You don't. Maybe because not very many people would be in the temp in the tabernacle all at once. Very few would make their way in to actually pursue the presence of God. And let that not be the case with our tabernacles. Let our courts ever be expanding to receiving more of the fullness of God. There's no limit to what we can receive from him. He's infinite and eternal. Let our courtyards expand ever increasingly. So make use of using the tabernacle as a model of prayer in pursuit of his presence. Make use of it. We need to... I found that when I do pray, and realizing that prayer is the pursuit of his presence, and that I am that tabernacle, so I'm pursuing God who's already living within me. He's always, he's always with me. Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you to the end of the world. Matthew 28, verse 20. He's always there. And I found that praying and pursuing his presence helps me practice his presence, to quote from the book of Brother Lawrence. Practicing his presence. In other words, being always aware that he is with me now. He's not with me just in church. He's not with me just in my devotion time. He is with me now, always, forever. I walk in his presence. And I want to have a life that's practicing that realization and a life of prayer that is constantly pursuing the realization of his presence will always remember that and walk in such a way that he is always with me. God has designated the tabernacle as a place where his people met with him, and prayer is the same for us. That's where we meet with him. Therefore, the command in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing is necessary that we're always realizing his presence. Praying without ceasing. Yes, the modeled form at times when you're really pursuing and receiving and listening to God. And then the free form when you're going through your day and just blurting out, Spurgeon called them bullet prayers to the Lord. Just shooting them out here and there. You see somebody, bless them, Father. And you're just going on your day, praying without ceasing. And that awakens the awareness that we are the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies is here and we're always in his manifest presence. So, if we indeed choose to pray in pursuit of his presence continually, then that will be evidence of our dependence upon his providence. If I never need his presence, if I'm never pursuing it, I don't need him. And my constant prayer is evidence of that dependence on him. We definitely need him. The tabernacle is located in the heart of Israel's camp. The center of everything they did was there. 
And if God's presence is the center of our life, our life will constantly pursue. If we're dependent, if we're putting him in the middle and hanging our life upon him, we will presently always pursue the presence of God. So this tabernacle is a model showing us that prayer pursues the Holy of Holies. It pursues his presence. And what we want to take from it is that our pursuit of his presence in prayer is evidence of our dependence on his providence so that we realize that prayer as the prince and the pauper, prayer is the prince's, prayer is the pauper's pursuit of the prince's presence. And that's why we want to pray. So the reasons to glorify him through our dependence on his preeminence, that was last week, and then we learn here that the result is the pursuit of his presence. So Father, we do indeed hold that promise dearly that in your presence is fullness of joy, your right hands are pleasures forevermore. We believe it. Therefore, we want to pursue it. Father, if we were offered 800 years of guaranteed pleasure, of 98% joy, we would decline because we realize that you promised 100% fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, not just for 800 years. So Lord, even if we had that great offer, the best the world can offer, strengthen us to decline because we are those who practice your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. close with the, the hymn that uh, what a friend we have in Jesus on prayer that'll be our theme closing song for the duration of this uh, series so. what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins to bear what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer oh what peace we often forfeit oh what needless pain we bear all because we do to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in so faithful who will all our sorrows share Jesus knows our every weakness take it to the Lord in prayer
but with a load of care. Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms we'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. 